Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father through our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a joy to be with you here today as we uh, look at what the Lord has called us to do. But before I do that, I want to just send my greetings on behalf of the California, Nevada, Hawaii district, on behalf of its president, Mike Lang. I want you to understand that as you gather here in this place, or you gather at home, or you watch on your computer, that you're not doing it alone. You're doing it in conjunction with 180 congregations that stretch from northern Nevada all the way from Santa Barbara up to the Oregon border and the entire state of Hawaii. In addition to our 180 congregations, we also have over 65 schools and preschools that help proclaim the good news of who Jesus is. And so, although you may feel separated during this time of pandemic and during this time of 2020, even as a congregation, perhaps you feel isolated and out here on your own, wondering if anybody else is dealing with the same things you're dealing with. Understand that you are not doing this alone. You have friends along the way, and you have an entire district that works for you. So on behalf of not only myself and our Livermore office, but on behalf of the entire district, I want you to understand that you are loved, that you are valued, and that you are sent by God with a purpose. Today we're going to focus on unity, how oftentimes we become separated, how our world is so polarized and so all over the place. It's almost fashionable to be polarized. Let me tell you this quick anecdote to kind of set the stage. My family moved from Wisconsin in April, so sort of at the height of the pandemic, and as we moved across the country from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to the Bay Area in Livermore here, we didn't know anyone. We had no friends, we had no family nearby, and so we had the opportunity to only meet our neighbors. Everything was shut down, and so we kind of thought to ourselves, I hope people are going to be willing to meet us. And thanks be to God, we moved to what I consider one of the most Midwestern places I've ever lived. It's this little court in Livermore where everybody seems like family and everyone gets along. Our kids found friends, were able to bounce around the neighborhood riding bikes with them. And everything was fairly normal, and then at the end of summer, all of a sudden, our time uh, in pandemic had hit. Our, our time in, in the fires had hit. Uh, school was about to start. And just prior to that, so maybe let's call it July, I was sitting down with my neighbor across the way, and we were having conversations about the two things you're never supposed to talk about, faith and politics. And we were talking not only about the upcoming presidential debate, but we also were talking about religion. And there was something that I said during the time, and she refuted me and was very upset about it and called me out on it, because I had a difference of opinion than she did. And so we had the opportunity to sit down and to kind of enjoy the conversation. I went home, and the very next day I returned back to her, and I said, you know what? I was thinking about what I said, and I was thinking about what you said, and I think you were right. Now, you should have seen her eyes light up as if to say, I don't think you're supposed to be doing this because in our world, we're supposed to dig in our heels, defend our positions, and do whatever it is that we need to do to continue on. And if somebody disagrees with us, then they're obviously against us. And so as I came back to share with her this news that she had kind of made me think about something a little bit differently, probably not swayed my opinion 100%, I thought it was pretty good grounds. But then when the fires came and our kids went back to school, their kids learned from home and our kids went into the classroom and somehow we violated the bubble or we violated our friendship or we violated our trust. And so all of a sudden everything shut down for a time. 
We went back to being isolated. We went back to doing our own things. And I couldn't understand exactly what happened. But I know that in America, we have this great polarization. In only a few more days, the election will be over. And we can finally all agree on something, that we're done seeing the ads, although we'll probably be very different on the opinions and outcomes of all of the elections we vote on, to the point where neighbors may not speak to neighbors. Friends may not speak to friends. And we're watching this unfold social media Why? But it's not just American politics. It's the issues of race. It's the issues of economics. It's the issues of religion that also divide us. And I think to myself, why in the world are we such a divided nation when we are called the United States of America? And I had to wonder, is this human nature or is this American culture? American culture certainly lends itself to this in that we kind of have this Pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. Every person could be a hero. The man-made dream, the man-American dream is to move from rags into riches. And believe it or not, we believe that we can do it. And the theory of America is that if all of us as individuals move forward and continue to progress, then as we go, collectively, we will also progress and become better. But as I dig through the scriptures and I look at what Martin Luther was facing when he was dealing with the Reformation 500 years ago, I realize that we are dealing with not an American issue, but we are dealing with a human issue and in fact a sinful issue. Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for those who are opposed to each other to keep from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What Paul's saying is that inside of us there's this tension. There's this tension that happens. There's the things that our flesh wants to do that we want to self-gratify with, that we want to take on to ourselves, even if it's not good for us or society, we somehow still want to do it. And yet when Jesus Christ comes and takes his dwelling up inside of each and every one of us and puts his Holy Spirit in our lives, we now have this internal conflicting result of what our flesh wants and and what our spirit wants, having been won by Christ. This is what Martin Luther talked about when he coined this Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, which means nothing except this. At the same time, both saint and sinner, we live in this tension, we live in this world. And so what are the things of the flesh? What are the sinful things that, that hunker us down? Paul writes this as he continues in verse five, chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 and 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. And I warned you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul gives us this list, right? Sexual immorality and sensuality and purity, idolatry, drunkenness, orgies. And there's this pretty horrific list of things, and yet there's some of the things that some of us may fall into because of our sinful nature. 
Hopefully we're not all falling into all of them. But as I read the list recently and thought of it in light of American culture and where we are today, I found it really interesting that the things of the flesh include fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. It is part of our sinful nature that we would be people who are divided, who are broken. It's what we want. We want division. We want dissension in our flesh. And yet our God comes and says, no, we need to unify. We need to work together. And so as I interacted with today's text from Romans chapter 3, another part that Paul wrote, I had to look at his approach that he used in dealing with the Romans. Now this is one of Paul's early texts that he writes. And he writes it to the Roman church, the Christians in Rome. And what makes this book unique is that he's never met the people in Rome. And so he's writing this not specifically as he does in many other books he writes, but he's writing in a very broad, systematic approach to kind of tell these new Christians what Christianity is all about. It's why Romans is kind of where we pull a lot of doctrine from. Because it's just universal, it's not specific for different people groups, but it just kind of paints the picture of the realities from a Christian perspective. So Paul starts off in Romans 1, verses, or verse, chapter 1 through chapter 3, and he talks about how uh, everybody's sinful. So it doesn't matter if you are born of the right family, or you've been Christian for a long time, or you're new to the faith, or if you have no interest in knowing who God is, the unrighteous people. It doesn't matter. Our God's wrath is sufficient for you because our God uh, could punish you and wipe, it, wipe you off the face of the earth. The wages of sin is death. And this is the reality that Paul comes from because he comes from a very uh, religious background. He comes from a very uh, Jewish background in which it's all about keeping the laws, about being self-righteous, and your righteousness is gained by how you respond and how you act to things. It's the exact same place that Luther, when he was uh, dealing with the Reformation in the late 15th century, found the book of Romans and had his eyes open to the realities of God's grace. He was coming out of the, the Catholic system, the Catholic Church, uh, and he was basically convinced that he needed to live a certain way and that our God was a God of wrath, a God of anger. And isn't it ironic that the Romans who Paul is writing this to are the same people who come up with the Roman Catholic Church? People don't tend to change, and they're still not changing today. And so as I looked at how Paul approached this group of people, and I looked how Luther approached things, and light of the Reformation, I realized that, yes, Paul said we are different people. We come from different walks of life. We have different opinions of ourselves and of God and of where things come from. We have difference of opinions politically, and we're different places economically. And yet, when he gets to this verse, in verses in chapter 3 of Romans, we start to understand that Paul doesn't focus on the divisions anymore. He instead focuses on the complete and utter unity <laughs> which happens to be our sinfulness and our brokenness. And so Paul writes to these people in Rome as he kind of wraps up his introduction in the first three chapters of Romans. And he tells the story, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction... Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
verse 24, and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier and the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul's saying, here's the deal. Everybody has sinned. Everybody has fallen short. And if you are in Christ Jesus and you are a believer, then you are set free and justified by his grace as a gift. So Paul doesn't focus on our differences and our divisions. He makes points of them. And at the end says, here's the deal. Because we have Christ and because he's died and because he's been resurrected, we also see life different. And so this kind of got me thinking, how in the world can we change our missional, re- uh, a missional approach? And thought to myself, maybe it's time for another reformation, a reformation in our missional approach on how we may want to reach out to our neighbors in a way that is different than we've done so before and in a way that's maybe more palatable. And so the first thing I thought to myself is maybe we should come from a place of relatability. And if it's true that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that all are broken, maybe the place we start in dealing with our unchristian neighbors is with our brokenness, with our messed upness, with our stories, which are riddled with pain and guilt and sin and shame. I'm a firm believer that sometimes we go through things and sometimes our biggest weaknesses can become our biggest strengths and sometimes the road that we have taken become our biggest inroad. No matter how frustrating and painful they were at the time or how bad they were at the time, they now become the inroads to help people who have been hurt, who have suffered, and who are in the midst of pain and suffering. It becomes the loudest point that we can come into somebody's life and say, listen, I've been where you've been before. I've been through the addiction. I've been through the divorce. I've, I've been a single parent before. I've had the injury before. I've heard the diagnoses before. I've bounced my checks. I've gotten myself in trouble. I've been in prison before. And the good news is, I found hope and help and someone beyond what this world can offer. And if my God can save me through Jesus Christ and set me free from whatever it is that I've been through and has delivered me from whatever it is, then maybe, just maybe, our God can do it for you. And when it becomes our point to deal from a relatable place, all of a sudden you're not coming in and telling people how they should live. Instead you're saying, look at my own life, my own brokenness, my own path. And look at where I am today. And look at where God can take you someday. Because there's a world out there that is looking for hope and help in this world. And they are trying different things. And they're going different places. And they are buying into the lies of Satan and this world. And yet here we sit. In a church. Knowing the true hope and help that has been evident in our lives through Jesus Christ. And there's this weird notion in the world that people in church can't relate because they have everything together. 
Their lives are put together. Everything's fine. Everything's great. And for some reason, I don't know how it happened. Maybe the church needs to hire a PR firm to fix this. Not your church in general, but the general church, the universal church, to let people know the actual message of Christianity is that we are suffering and that we are hopeless and helpless on our own. And we have a Savior who has ransomed us, who loves us, who values us. And he's now called us into a purpose. I can't tell you how many people I meet on a weekly basis that don't think anybody loves them, that don't think they have any value, and are pretty convinced they have no purpose. From the addict, to the rebellious teen, to the widow, to the widower, to those who are on death's door. God has taken you off the heap. He has redeemed you. He has ransomed you. He has made you his own. He loves you and he values you at the price of his son Jesus' blood. And he gives you a purpose to go and make more disciples. So how are we going to do that? I developed this sort of list of things along the way and because I'm simple and I forget things, I start them all with L. The first one is I believe that God has put you into this world to live your life. And I think we buy into this notion that if we're going to do mission work or we're going to do ministry, we need to go out there, we need to go over there, we need to go to those people. And yet Luther develops this thing at about the time of the Reformation called the doctrine of vocation. Doctrine of vacation sounds like a better idea. But we have vocation, which means that God has placed you in the relationships he's placed you, he's placed you in the places he's placed you for the purpose that you would make more and better disciples of Jesus. And so your vocation may include things like being a carpenter, being a janitor, being retired. It may include things like being a grandma, being a grandpa, being a son, being a daughter, being a husband, being a child, being an avid sports fan, being a quilter. And through all of it, we use the relationships right where God has placed us to live our lives so that others may know who Jesus is. Luther had this famous quote that said, a a cobbler, a shoemaker, does not glorify God by tacking little crosses onto each pair of shoes. No. He glorifies God by making great shoes, quality shoes, because he knows his neighbor needs them. It'll make his neighbor more palatable to listen to the gospel, more intrigued, more comfortable. To listen to the good news of Jesus. And so we live our lives, and then the next step is we look around. Now, I've never been to Milpitas before in my life. As I drove in, I noticed a few things. I noticed you have some great diversity culturally. I noticed there's probably people who don't speak English in your neighborhood. I noticed there's people who have different religious views. I saw a Sikh man on the corner. I notice there's people who care about their health because they're running around, and I notice it's fairly suburban, at least in this neighborhood. I notice the houses weren't falling down. I notice a lot of condos. I, I know nothing else about Milpitas except the fact that I could see, and seeing allows me to understand what's happening a little bit. How many times in the Scriptures does Jesus say, or does the scripture record, and seeing the crowd, he had compassion on them. 
When we see things with our eyes, it can cause our heart to break. We don't even know the entire story, and yet there we are, concerned and compelled to want to do something as Christians. Sometimes we're compelled to turn the other way and just pretend we didn't see it or completely ignore it. But if we live our lives and we look around, we can get some sort of opportunity to serve people. Now to take it another step lower, you want to go ahead and you want to listen to people. Live your life. Look around. Listen. There's a story in John chapter 4 that Jesus tells, or Jesus is recorded from John, meeting with a woman at the well. And this woman has been married multiple times. This woman is a Samaritan woman. What I find really interesting is that Jesus sits down at the well with her and records a conversation. But what I find really unique about this is that in John chapter 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And then, in parentheses, as if John said, maybe someone won't get the significance of this. He writes it down, which gets translated into English in a parenthesis. It says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. And I wonder in 2020 if our stories are going to read, Joe went over to his neighbor's house, which is weird because those people don't hang out with those people. Democrats don't associate with Republicans. Republicans don't associate with Democrats. And maybe in the 1960s, the story would have said, just so you're aware, African-American men do not talk to white men, and white men do not talk to black men. And maybe earlier in history, it was men do not associate with women. Whatever it may be, the point is Jesus went out of his way to listen and to interact with people who are different because when somebody tells you their story, you learn so much more than you could have learned just by looking at them. You hear their heart, you hear their passion, you hear what's going on in their lives in the underbelly of everything. And maybe, just maybe, you find yourself upset and wrong about the assumptions you made when you simply were just looking. So you live your life, you look around, you listen to your neighbor, and then I think there's another one that I added later on called learn. And then you need to learn about what's happening. If there is an immigration issue, go study it, go figure it out. If there's a sex trafficking issue, go read about it, go learn about it, go figure it out. Become the greatest instrument that God can allow you to be. But it's going to come because you took time not only to see the problem, but also to figure out how it is that you might be able to deal with it. And then in 1 Corinthians, we hear that if everything, if you have the faith to move the mountains and all these things, but you have not love, you're just making noise. You're a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. I believe if you live your life for God's place, you look around, you listen, and you learn, but you do nothing about it, then what good are you doing? You're wasting your time and the lives of other people who you could be telling the good news of Jesus to. And so we live our lives we look around, we listen, we learn, and then we love because we first have been loved. Now, how do we live? How do we love? 
I told you, Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5 about the things of the flesh like division and dissension. But maybe the second half of this passage is one you're more familiar with. Maybe not. But I believe we're called to live palatably in love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things there are no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. If we just took the last verse, that we should not be conceited, we should, provoke, we should not provoke one another, and we should not envy one another, I think we'd be in a far more palatable place. And then if you lump on all the fruits of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who wouldn't want to be around someone like that? The reality is we need to be better as Christians in making sure that our main goal is to proclaim the kingdom of God and Christ who saved us. We can have differences in America. We can have differences in 2020 regarding politics and masks and politicians and governors and race economics, fill in the blank. But we must cover it in love and we must be willing to sacrifice some of that and at the very least learn how to disagree better. In a couple days our world may change. It may look the same for many of us. An election will happen. But the truth remains that all men will be sinful and that for those who are in Christ, they have been redeemed and forgiven and set free. And for those who do not know Christ, there is hope because Christ came to save all. And how is it as Christians we find a new way, a better way, to bring that good news to others? That's the question we struggle with. That's what we deal with. That we crucify our flesh, which includes divisions, dissensions, fits of anger, and separation. Unity will only come through Christ. And I pray that by his grace and for his sake, he grants the ability for all of us to become better missionaries, bringing unity into this world. Amen.